Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former U.S. intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, I have a very interesting guest. His name is Shane Harris. He is a staff writer for The Washington Post on intelligence and national security affairs. He also covered intelligence for The Wall Street Journal. He has a couple of books out. One is called The Watchers, and the other is The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. He um, is a winner of the Gerald Ford Award, and he's a graduate of Wake Forest University. He appeared as a featured speaker at our 8 April in-person lunch and was a real hit with that live audience. So I've asked him to come back today and share his thoughts with a broader audience. Shane, welcome to AFIO Now. Jim, thanks very much for having me. It's uh, it's nice to see you again uh, virtually. Thanks for having me at the uh, at the larger event, which was a real treat to get to talk to everyone there. So I'll, I'm I'm happy to, to to talk about what's going on in Ukraine and how I've been covering that conflict and some of the challenges I think this is going to pose for the intelligence community. Uh, and we're still in early days of those questions, but it's been a fascinating story to cover already because already so many big themes are emerging out of just the day-to-day, which of course is a very traumatic and terrifying story. Uh, but I'll spend a little bit of time talking about some of what those big ideas are. Um, but as we're talking right now, it's, uh, it's April 19th, uh, and this is actually a fairly significant moment, it looks like, in the conflict, which is now uh, sort of bordering on about oh, 55 days old or so, so we're entering into kind of month two. It looks like the second phase of the conflict is beginning. Um, after uh, Vladimir Putin uh, uh, ordered troops into Ukraine on February 24th, there was, I think it's safe to say, an assumption among a lot of Western countries, certainly in the United States, and I think even in the intelligence community, uh, that this could be a fairly quick conflict, that Russian forces would storm in, uh, they could take Kyiv, the capital, in 48 to 72 hours. The intention seems to have been to launch a decapitation strike, take out the central government, uh, whether you capture or kill Zelensky was a different question, I guess, but basically replace the government in Kiev with a puppet regime favorable to Moscow. Uh, and that went uh, spectacularly the other way. It was a disaster for Russian forces, uh, as we all know, and I don't have to recount that. But safe to say that the original plan, I think, as it was conceived by Putin and his military strategists, failed. Uh, and what we see them doing now is moving their forces to the east of Ukraine, and particularly this contested region, uh, uh, the Donbass, where uh, I think Putin is going to now try to concentrate his forces in a hope that he can create essentially Russian control over the east of Ukraine and have a land bridge down to Crimea, which, of course, his forces have been on since 2014 when they first invaded Ukraine. And I, I emphasize that because what we're seeing now, you could call what happened in February the second invasion of Ukraine, uh, because, of course, Putin went in eight years ago. So he's tried to sell that, interestingly, this move to the east in Russia as this um, sort of strategy that was always in the works. The idea being that the reason they went into Kyiv and launched this broader attack across the whole country was to avoid creating a second front in the east. Uh, you know, I don't know logically how that makes a lot of sense. I'm not a military strategist. Doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Uh, but clearly he's trying to save face, it seems. And now he's regrouping and putting these forces in the east. And I think what a lot of analysts are expecting now, and let's hope they're wrong about this, 
uh, is that what you're going to see is some of the bloodiest and most protracted fighting of the war, because this is not about urban warfare now. This is about fighting out in open areas on the steps of Ukraine, uh, brutal artillery battles, uh, uh, you know, against uh, Ukrainian forces that are trenched in already. Uh, you could be seeing, you know, a conflict that stretches on for, for many, many months with very high casualties. So that's sort of where we are right now. And what's notable, too, to me about that period that this phrase we're entering is I don't know that you're going to see some of the more dramatic kind of images that you saw in the first phase of the campaign where you saw everything from, you know, the horrible shelling of cities like Mariupol, like the, the, the what I think probably count as war crimes, you know, visited on Bucha, but also these, you know, kind of spectacular moments of victory by Ukrainian forces, you know, most recently the sinking of this flagship in Black, the Black Sea, the Moskva. Um, uh, really these kind of moments that are, that capture the imagination because the imagery is so intense and there are reporters who are there to find, to, to bring those back. You're talking about now, perhaps, you know, artillery battles out on an open plain, maybe, you know, engagements that happen every week or so. I just wonder whether or not it is going to be as visually kind of, um, arresting in some ways as the first phase of the conflict, which may make it frankly harder for Western audiences to understand. Uh, and it may make the story kind of drag on and fade a little bit uh, from the headlines. That's going to be very interesting to watch as it enters into this kind of this second phase. Uh, and I'm struck, too, by the fact that I don't know what Russians are seeing and hearing and learning about this conflict back in Russia. Uh, you know, we were speaking just before we started this conversation about reports that it's not clear that people back in Russia even understand whether their loved ones who were on that ship or alive or dead. Uh, and this has been true, too, of other uh, reports from the front, I guess, that it's not clear that Russians are being told the truth about how the war is going. Uh, and so that's going to be something really important to watch as well. But as we kind of are entering that new phase, you know, what I want to do is also kind of go back and talk about how we got into this first phase of the conflict, because there was something really extraordinary that happened in the run up to the war uh, that was unique in my career of you know 20 plus years covering the intelligence community. And that is that we saw these selective disclosures, these declassifications of information by the U.S. government and its allies, intelligence about what Russia was up to what its plans and intentions were. Uh, I won't call them leaks because a leak is technically an unauthorized disclosure of information. This was the Biden administration making a very calculated judgment to take classified intelligence and downgrade it and declassify it and put it out there for the purposes of trying to, in some cases, preempt Russia's actions, but also to shape the kind of the narrative of the information space, if you want to think of it that way, um, that existed uh, before the, uh, the invasion. And, you know, where this all kind of starts actually is in early December. And I played a direct role in this because I, I was one of the, the reporters on the first story that was the product of this selectively declassified information that the government was putting out. Uh, we ran a story on the front page of the paper on December 3rd featuring an intelligence document that had satellite photos showing Russian military forces massing at various points along the border of Ukraine. Uh, and what was notable about this is that, well, two things really. One is that it was accompanied by analysis from U.S. officials who said, we think that Russia could deploy up to 175,000 troops and that this constitutes a force that Vladimir Putin could order into Ukraine basically at the moment of his choosing, that these weren't just 
pre-positioning. These looked like forces that were coming in for the purposes of an invasion, or at least getting right on the edge of doing that if they were ordered. So that was really startling. Um, and what was also notable about this is that these images were really corroborated by commercial satellite imagery that we had been looking at as reporters and we had been aware of uh, for some weeks because this buildup, of course, didn't just start happening in December. It had been happening for some time. Putin was even massing troops on the border back in the spring of last year. Uh, so we have this you know, classified government intelligence that looks a lot like information that's already in the public domain, which sort of raises all kinds of interesting questions about, well, why was this classified in the first place? To be clear, I don't think the government was releasing its most sophisticated satellite imagery. There's probably much more high resolution imagery that they had. But they were also putting an analysis on that and, and saying, essentially, this is the view of of U.S. officials who study this and look at it every day. And this really kind of stopped people on their tracks. That story came out. It was, it was a big, big story. Uh, I immediately heard reactions to it from former intelligence officials, former military officers who'd served in Europe, and people who frankly had were having the same concerns that the sources we talked to were, which was that this looked like Vladimir Putin was about to go to war, and perhaps people weren't paying enough attention to that. Uh, and perhaps, you know, allies in Europe were not sufficiently focused on that. And this disclosure began this cascade, really, of similar productions of information. I note that on January 23rd, the British government came out with a public statement from their foreign minister, uh, Liz Truss, saying that intelligence indicated that Moscow was trying to topple the government in Kyiv and install a puppet regime. This was, you know, weeks before the invasion actually occurred. We reported that out with our sources. We felt that we could corroborate those claims. At least these were things that intelligence officials judged were happening. Notably, that was intelligence information that was supplied by the United States to the British government which then vetted it and put it out under its own kind of banner. So this um, showed that suddenly now the U.S. and the U.K. were very much on the same side of having great concerns about this. It wasn't just the Biden administration sort of uh, accusing Russia of preparing to do something nefarious. Now these two principal allies were in agreement on this subject. Uh, and then in February, we saw more reports and disclosures about Russia actually trying to concoct a video that would purport to show falsely Ukrainian forces attacking Russian forces. Uh, there were going to be corpses apparently used to stage uh, as victims of an attack. Uh, allegedly, Russia was going to hire actors to, to play the role of, of mourners. I mean, really kind of, you know, fantastical stuff. Um, but, you know, all of a piece of Russia trying to create this pretext for an invasion um, using false flags, you know, using potential regime change tactics, things that we had frankly seen Russia do before. Uh, and here are governments pushing that information out, the United States, the UK, trying to, I think, not so much preempt him from invading, because at that time, in talking to my sources in those governments, it was clear their confidence was at around 70 or 75 percent that Putin was going to invade, which if you're not an intelligence officer, that's really high. That basically means we think it's going to happen uh, without saying 100% because you never say 100%. So what they were really trying to do, I think, is, is kind of cut off those different avenues, make it so that he wouldn't try the false flag attack with the video because we've already alerted the world that he's trying to do it, make it so that he wouldn't try uh, so overtly, perhaps, to try and topple the regime in Kyiv because the British government came out and named the former Ukrainian lawmakers who were friendly to Russia that he was allegedly trying to install. So I think this had a way of, you know, well, 
certainly intelligence officials I've talked to, I should say, believe this had some effect of preventing him from trying some of those tactics and also shaping that narrative and that discussion around what Putin was doing, such that when he invaded ultimately on February 23rd, you know, it was kind of, it was a black and white matter. It was, you know, Ukraine was this fledgling democracy that was invaded unprovoked. And Putin was the one who was doing all this planning, basically out in the open with no compunction, even though he'd been called out on it. And I do think that it had a way of emphasizing the difference, the sort of the, you know, the positive and negative, you know, uh, of this story. And that was very effective. And I think that it it's something that intelligence agencies as organizations that deal with information as a kind of currency and understand the power of telling stories whether that's to a policymaker or the way that the media tells a story or governments tell stories to their people. I think that they understood the value of this information that they had collected, that these intelligence agencies had collected, satellite imagery, clearly signals intelligence information, communications intercepts, perhaps some human intelligence as well, kind of in the mix. And there seems to have been a sense among U.S. officials that, look, we spend billions of dollars building an apparatus to collect all this stuff, why don't we use it? Why don't we put it out there and tell the world what we know? And there was a case study of what doing the opposite gets you. If you go back to 2014, when Russia first invaded Ukraine and landed forces in Crimea, you know, we all remember these images of you know, soldiers in camouflage fatigues running around with guns, but no insignias on their uniform. And Russia sort of laughably claiming, well, they're not our forces, which gave rise to the question of, well, who are these little green men that seem to have landed in Ukraine? Well, the United States knew who they were. They knew they were Russian forces. There was an intelligence to show that. There was intelligence showing weapons, Russian weapons going into the east of Ukraine, uh, being received and handled by Ukrainian separatists who were friendly to Russia. But none of this information was being pushed out. There were a lot of people in, that, in the Obama administration who were frustrated by that and who now are in positions of authority in the Biden administration. And I think that we have to remember that I think that they looked at those lessons and said, you know, we could have told the world more about what we knew Russia was doing then and not just let, have let Russia get away with it and tell its own kind of, you know, ridiculous stories. Um, we'll remember, too, when the Malaysian airliner was shot down over eastern Ukraine by Ukrainian separatists using Russian missiles. That story actually got publicized in the open source by journalists, by open source investigators like the group Bellingcat, who kind of marvelously pieced together social media information showing the actual weapons system being trucked in to Ukraine that was you know, believed to be the missile that shot down the plane and very clearly linked this and put the blood on Russia's hands. Um, the U.S. intelligence community had information of that effect, too. They actually did do a briefing for reporters around that subject that I attended where they kind of showed us the satellite imagery and they told us, look, we have sophisticated sensors that tell us that Russia did this. And while the intelligence itself was more uh, detailed, perhaps than what Bell and Cag had and certainly was classified, the conclusion was the same. Russia effectively is responsible for this shoot down and then this horrible killing of hundreds of people. So I think that the intelligence community in 2022 looked at this and said, you know, let's not do this again. Let's, to the extent that we can, downgrade, declassify, and distribute intelligence to try and tell a story. And, you know, Director Burns and Director Haynes seem very much 
on board with that strategy. It's ultimately the president's decision, um, but they seem to support that. And, and, and I wonder to what degree that signals you know, a change in the way the intelligence community is going to operate in the future. If not, if they're going to run that same play every time there's another conflict or a potential conflict, but I think now it will at least be considered, you know, because they now have seen that it can be effective. Um, they've seen that you can push this information out and it doesn't necessarily, the sky doesn't fall. Um, maybe there was some depletion of sources and methods. It kind of doesn't seem like it in the sense that the United States and its allies seem to still have a pretty good sense of what's going on in Russia in terms of military movements. So the, there was, I think that you know, the gain-loss equation came out here very much in favor of the gain. Uh, and I think that that's going to be you know, something that policymakers are going to have to consider in future conflicts as well. Um, notably, too, there's another dimension of this whole information environment story, and that's the one coming from Ukraine. Where President Zelensky has, you know, masterfully realized the power of open source information and social media to tell a story, not just about Ukrainian military victories, which are significant, obviously, and quite surprising to many observers, but to tell a story about Ukraine, to shape people's idea of Ukraine as this kind of David against Goliath. You know, I'm not sure many Americans would have been able, frankly, to point Ukraine out on a map before this conflict. Most Americans, if they'd ever heard of Volodymyr Zelensky, probably knew him as the person who was on the other end of the famous perfect phone call uh, that President Trump made in which he pressured President Zelensky to open investigations into his political adversaries in exchange for aid to Ukraine that Congress had authorized. Um, so Zelensky kind of figures as this character in the first impeachment drama. He was not necessarily popular in Ukraine. Uh, his popularity was flagging. He was not making good, many people thought, on his promises to root out corruption. Um, he had been a sitcom actor and a comedian before he became president. So all this is basically all the West knows, the Western populations of this man. And then they see him three days after Russia has invaded and rumors are circulating that he has fled Ukraine and left his people behind. They see him with a cell phone and a tactical military shirt, holding it out like a selfie and making a video of himself in front of Ukrainian presidential administration buildings surrounded by his senior aides you know, at night and saying, I am here, the national security advisor is here, my chief of staff is here, and we are not leaving. And it just completely galvanizes this image of him and this idea about Ukraine as this kind of plucky, innovative, democratic country that is like fighting for its life, right? And he does this quickly in the opening days of the conflict, when it's not entirely clear that the Russian invasion, by the way, is going to go spectacularly badly for Putin. He's doing this at a moment where it still seems that Kiev could fall. And he's promising, I will stay here. When I talked to one of his advisors in that first week who said he's prepared to stay there and die if he has to. This story gets out. Zelensky is pushing this out via social media. He is producing I, mean, I don't mean to, you know, to, 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 to diminish this in some way, but to bring it back to his role as a television actor, he is producing his own show and starring in it. And it's winning and it is drawing more attention and more support than anything Vladimir Putin is putting out. You contrast the images 
that Putin is is distributing, where he does go on state television and you see him sitting at this, you know, impossibly long marble table with his defense secretary 50 feet away, or you see him sitting in this like, you know, crypt-like, you know, building where he's surrounded by yes-men who are all getting up and nodding their heads and telling him what a good job he's doing and what a great idea it is to invade Ukraine. It's absurd, right? And to Western audiences particularly who who understand what authoritarian regimes look like, it almost looks like the parody of an authoritarian regime. And meanwhile, you've got Vladimir Zelensky, you know, with six-day beard growth and a military t-shirt running around and having coffee and with the troops and, you know, and presenting a completely different image and one that so much resonates so much more strongly, I think, with Western audiences. And then, of course, he's giving, you know, speeches by Zoom to the British Parliament you know, he's quoting Churchill. He's speaking to the Congress you know, of the United States. He's getting standing ovations. It is just an absolute masterclass in how you use information and information technology to get out and tell a story. And he's doing all of this while he's literally under siege. Um, you know, he's And he's not in a suit and he's not flying off to Brussels. He's staying in Kiev and doing this. Uh, and that made a huge difference, I think. It, it, you can't, I don't think you can say that's what made the difference necessarily in, you know, in tactically in the war. I mean, Russia seemed woefully prepared for this invasion, absolute colossal logistical nightmare, failures on so many levels of, uh, for the, of the invasion, including, you know, you know, apparently not bringing enough food rations for a protracted invasion. But you cannot discount the way that I think, you know, Zelensky rallied the world to Ukraine's aid. And while he has continued to be very frustrated, openly so, that the West is not doing more as he sees it to help repel this Russian invasion, which could include, you know, a no-fly zone, more weapons faster. And he's kind of given up on the idea that maybe troops would go in. Um, but it's because he's been constantly applying that pressure and has built so much popular support, I think, in Europe and in the United States among, you know, ordinary citizens, that the West is just flooding the zone with weapons. And, you know, the United States committed just in the past week to another $800 million, $800 million security package. So this is a very, very big commitment. And I think that he deserves a ton of credit for making sure that that happens. It's a couple of other features of this that conflict that bear on now what the future looks like for, you know, the intelligence community and, and the U.S. national security establishment before the invasion, kind of conventional wisdom in Washington about how the, the challenge was going to proceed for the next five to 10 years for the U.S. intel community was China is the big adversary, right? It is the most complex, multidimensional, strategic adversary the United States faces. It's the second largest economy in the world. It has a growing economy. It has territorial ambitions of its own. It is extending its influence around the world, notably in Africa and in things like development projects with the Belt and Road Initiative. Oh, and by the way, it might want to take Taiwan. So, you know, pretty big problem. The CIA several months ago announced the creation of a new China mission center, which is going to cut across every facet of the agency. The only mission center that really is cross-cutting against every component of the agency geared towards gathering intelligence about China and countering China's influence, the Chinese government's influence abroad. So that was kind of the big mission. And not to say that Russia was off the table, 
But kind of below that, you would sort of put Russia, Iran, North Korea as sort of big state adversaries that the United States needs to collect intelligence on, keep an eye on, think about how to counter their malign influence. But Russia would not have been that kind of top of mind target, I think. And now that changes where I think in its early days, you almost have to view Russia and China kind of on the same threat level, which is not to say that they are equally strong countries. They are obviously very different, you know, forms of, there's similar forms of government that they're both authoritarian, but they're very different structures. There's, there's a lot of differences, but Russia has now invaded a democracy in the heart of Europe. I mean, that didn't really happen even, I mean, I mean, in the Cold War, I mean, obviously Russia annexed other countries, but this is analogous, would have been analogous to them invading a NATO neighbor, right? That's what That's what's happened here raising the specter horribly of, of a nuclear exchange on top of everything. So I don't know how you know the U.S. national security community thinks the same way now about security in Europe. And, and the global ripple effects of that are huge. You know, as disastrous as the invasion has been for Russia, I don't know that anybody, certainly no one I talk to, thinks that Vladimir Putin is chastened uh, and that he's just going to simply lick his wounds and go back to the way things were. He'll continue to pose a threat. And already you see, you know, Germany increasing its defense spending. You see, you know, other NATO allies um, asking for the positioning of more NATO troops in their country. So long term, Russia is now a much more prominent threat than, than, than maybe people in the IC had, had considered. Not that they took their eye off it. I don't mean that. But like if you're rank ordering, I think you have to now kind of put Russia and China together. And of course, there's this kind of budding alliance with Russia as this junior partner to Beijing, all the sources I've talked to in the reporting I've read is that, you know, the relationship between China and Russia has not deteriorated because of this invasion, even though we've reported that Chinese authorities made it clear to Russian authorities that they did not want them to invade Ukraine until after the Beijing Olympics had closed, which gives you some indication that China not only had an insight into what Russia was up to, but had some anxieties about it. Um, and notably, the, the joint statement of cooperation that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin put out during the Olympics, where essentially they said our, our relationship knows no limits, never mentioned Ukraine, which, which was an insight that some took into President Xi's thinking that maybe he wasn't really all that thrilled about Vladimir Putin launching this war. But despite that, and despite the, the willingness of the government in China to supply not weapons, but other forms of support to Russia, you know, you're not seeing any, I think, breaking of, of that relationship. So now for the intelligence community, it's China, it's Russia, it's Russia and China together. These are just profound dynamics. And we're only at the very early, early stages of, of trying to understand that, I think, as journalists. And I, I suspect that, that to some degree, that's true probably in the intelligence community as well, where there's this day-to-day -day conflict. And now we have to find a moment to try and kind of step back and appreciate what that's going to mean long term. I didn't cover the Cold War. I grew up as a child of the Cold, the Cold War uh, and remember that very vividly and the threat of nuclear war and the fear that we were going to go to war with the Soviets. As a reporter, I've never covered that kind of dynamic. And I don't want to be too quick to draw an analogy to the Cold War because this is different in many respects. But it feels like some of those lessons and those themes are now emerging again and are going to inform probably a lot of the questions that I'm asking, you know, as a reporter. That's going to be a very exciting story. I mean, it's a traumatic one. But as a journalist, I mean, we are, 
I think we are sort of instinctually drawn to conflict and we are the people who kind of, you know, we're the crazy ones who are rushing to get into Ukraine as opposed to going the other way right now. And, and we're drawn to these kinds of stories of intrigue and of conflict and of struggle to try and understand them and explain them to people. I love covering intelligence because of all the reasons that it's fun to read about, right? It's filled with intrigue and the stakes are so incredibly high and the information can be so hard to get. You know, you're already seeing sort of, you know, spy versus spy games playing out in the wake of this, you know, with countries in Europe kicking out this extraordinary number, hundreds of Russian intelligence officers from various capitals in Europe, which effectively kind of deals this potential mortal wound to Russia's intelligence gathering capability uh, in Europe. That is an intelligence action. Uh, that, and it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out you know, and how these Russia and the U.S. and its allies kind of are, are, are going about these covert conflicts with each other. That's going to keep me busy for, for many, many years, uh, I suspect. And the last thing I'll say, that it, it, a big theme of this conflict that has left me feeling especially anxious, as I'm sure it has a lot of people and policymakers, too, and that is the threat of nuclear war. It cannot be overstated that if Vladimir Putin did not have a nuclear arsenal of the size that he does, the U.S. and Western response to this invasion would be fundamentally very different. I think it would be much more robust. I think there would be far less hesitation about something like a no-fly zone. And I don't mean to say that Western powers would be cavalier about going head toe-to-toe with Russia. I certainly don't think they would have the same level of anxiety about the strength of the Russian military <laughs> that they might have had before February 24th. But if Vladimir Putin didn't have nuclear weapons, I think that you would see a far more forward and robust response. And the fact is he does have them and he has threatened to use them insofar as he has raised his nuclear alert level by a step, which is not to say he's taken it all the way to you know, DEFCON 2 or something, but that was a very significant action. And of course, Russian military doctrine does um, have the principle of using nuclear weapons or tactical nuclear weapons in an escalatory way in order to de-escalate a conflict. So it is written into their doctrine that they have contemplated and are willing to offensively use a nuclear weapon as a first strike in order to basically get their adversaries to back down. So here we are kind of faced with that prospect that heretofore would have been, I think, unthinkable. Certainly after the fall of the Soviet Union, I don't know many people who were worried about the United States and Russia getting into a nuclear exchange. And yet here we are having to contemplate that in a real meaningful way. So that is very much kind of looming over all of this. And I think that the example, sadly, that Putin has given to other regimes that are trying to acquire nuclear weapons or are building their own arsenals, we could take Iran, North Korea, or countries that already have them, you know, like Pakistan, is that having a nuclear arsenal gives you an enormous amount of leverage to do many of the things that you want to do, including invading a neighbor, including attacking a neighbor, as long as you have demonstrated the, the willingness to use it, I suppose. I wonder whether or not, I fear, that this war in Ukraine is going to set off a new arms race and it's going to provide an incentive for so many countries to acquire these horrific weapons as a way of basically executing their policy. And that is going to be something that the United States and its allies have to contend with as well. These are profound ideas. These are really scary times. As a journalist, it is kind of what we live for <laughs> in the sense that you know, it is our job to 
to, you know, as I said, to kind of headlong into these crises. It doesn't make us happy, I think, to report on them. But this is what I think, you know, we're here to do is to try and explain this to people. And it's going to be keeping me very, very busy. So I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to talk to your membership about it, to try and lay out some of the ideas about how I think about it. And, uh, I remain optimistic about the future. Shane, that's a great review of recent events. I will ask you one question that was raised by a member of the audience at the 8 April lunch, and that is, how does the Washington Post select people to go to a war zone, and how do they manage that process when uh, people volunteer to go to places like um, Kiev and elsewhere to cover the war? Well, you use the right word. It's volunteer. Uh, there's no requirement that anyone go. When we when the war started, we well, I should say in the weeks before, we had, did have some reporters and photographers who were already there who had volunteered to go. Uh, one of them, a colleague of mine on the National Security Desk, uh, who is a former Marine, so he had had he had served in combat, uh, so he kind of had a level of, of, of expectation and training that, you know, not all correspondents have. But the next subsequent waves that have gone in have been people, many of whom have been foreign correspondents, who've served in hostile areas, who've worked in places like Afghanistan. So we look for people who want to go, number one, uh, ideally have some experience that gives them a leg up for how to get around in a dangerous place. All personnel who go over, all staff go through a security training course, which basically teaches them things like first aid, what to do if you come under attack or under fire. It's kind of like how to tie a tourniquet and how to hide behind a car or a building. So they get some of that basic that basic training. And then we, we try not to leave them in there for too long because it's obviously it's incredibly grueling. They're not regular hours. And then we try to find people who kind of rotate in and rotate out. And then back at our headquarters in Washington and our various hubs also in London and in Seoul, but mainly in Washington, you know, we have a team of really seasoned editors, including a couple who themselves have been foreign bureau chiefs and who have reported from war zones before, who are keeping watch over all of that and are keeping in contact with those correspondents, making sure that they're not doing anything you know, too risky, um, making sure they know where they are at all times and that we're in touch with them. It's a pretty sophisticated operation. And for those people who, who choose to go over, I think they're doing it out of the sense that it is a tremendous experience if you're a foreign reporter. This is something that is unusual to get a chance to go in and report on a story like this. But they are genuinely, I think, driven by a sense of mission. And friends that I've had who've been over there and the dispatches that they've sent back, they are looking for stories about people. And they are you know, telling these very emotional stories to put a human face on this. My colleague, Hannah Alam, who is actually in Lviv right now and had just got there thinking that probably Lviv was going to be a fairly quiet place. And yesterday there was a missile attack uh, on the city. It's been the Western, U part of Western Ukraine that's been a relative safe haven. Uh, and she wrote just these very moving reports from people who had taken shelter in a hotel where there were civilians. And she is really there, like so many colleagues, bearing witness to what is happening. And that's going to be extraordinarily important, I think, going forward, if there's ever going to be any kind of justice as well for the, the what I think and other officials say uh, are war crimes that are being committed by Russia and its forces. Well, telling the story to the rest of the world is a terribly important role. And we uh, hope and pray that they and others are able to stay safe. Shane, as I discussed to you uh, off camera, Part of our broader audience is an academic audience, both colleges, uh, uh, college university professors and students who are studying about intelligence and national security affairs. You've been doing this for about 20 years now. 
How did you get into it? Um, what kind of experiences have you had? And what advice, if any, would you have to uh, young people who aspire to doing uh, something similar? Well, I got into journalism very much by accident. I, I wanted to be a writer, but most of the writing I had done uh, in college uh, and high school as well was fiction. I, I worked a lot in theater. I was in a sketch comedy troupe when I was in college. And I imagined writing plays or screenplays or novels. Um, I just love telling stories. I was also just a very kind of insatiably curious child. Uh, you know, uh, had I had the internet as a kid, I would have been the one on Wikipedia looking up everything. Uh, as it happened, I had a world book encyclopedia and I just looked things up all the time. I, I loved that. I loved hanging out in libraries and just trying to answer questions. So when I graduated college in 98, I was very interested in writing. I was very interested in politics and in government and in American history. And, and I was living in Washington and a friend of mine said sort of casually like, well, why don't you become a journalist? Because you're interested in writing and you like politics. And it was sort of thought like, sure, where do I sign up for that? With no real concept about how one goes about getting into journalism, which ultimately served me very well because my level of ignorance about the profession meant that I wasn't intimidated by the career path that, that's, that a more seasoned journalist might have told me lay ahead of me. Traditionally, that would have meant working at a small paper, you know, covering city council meetings and the water board, uh, you know, maybe moving up to a wire service or a regional paper, and eventually maybe, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, you land a job with the Washington Post or the New York Times, uh, and you start off in their metro division, then you work your way up to a national reporting beat. In the late 90s, that model was kind of disintegrating, in part because local news was being hollowed out, and there weren't a lot of places for aspiring and young journalists to go work and cut their teeth. And also the internet was emerging as this hugely disruptive force that was going to change how we did journalism and how we published and how we distributed it and the business model of journalism. And there were a lot more opportunities for young people to go work for websites and startups and do the kind of work that they would normally have done at a small paper. And so I got a job Ultimately, after a couple of years of researching, being as a researcher in some small magazines, got a job at a magazine in Washington in 2001, which your members may know, called Government Executive, uh, which is a magazine that covers basically the federal bureaucracy and federal managers and senior officials in government. And I was writing for their magazine, but also for their website because they did a daily news website and they needed young reporters to go out there and fill up the website. And I was writing about technology in the federal government when the 9-11 attacks happened. And very quickly, the, the beat that I was covering, which was largely about how the government was using new information technologies and the power of the internet to improve the operations of government, became a story about how could the government use technology to improve national security? How could they use it to harness all of the intelligence that these different agencies had, but were not necessarily co uh, correlating, were not sharing with one another? You know, how do we ensure that we can detect the signal and the noise, if you will, about what the next terrorist plot is? And, you know, technology held this promise to solve all kinds of hard problems, and one of them was terrorism. And so, Nobody was really covering the intelligence community at government executive at the time. There really wasn't an intelligence beat. I mean, there were reporters who, by virtue of the fact that they covered the State Department or the Pentagon, knew people in the intelligence community. But you didn't have a cadre of, of reporters, as you do now, who just spend their time looking at the IC. It, just, it wasn't a big um, 
group. And so I raised my hand and said, look, you know, everyone I'm talking to on my tech beat keeps talking about these three letter agencies and how important they are and how they need to use technology better. Can I write about those agencies as well? And my editors said, yes, because somebody needs to do it. And I was, you know, 25 years old at the time. And this is the nature of journalism. Sometimes it's both being in the right place at the right time. And you find like the kid who's willing to go do it and sort of, you know, take the risk and who's still young and green enough to actually they can find the thrill and the challenge of a new of a new beat. And so they kind of pushed me into that. And or I volunteered it and they said, yes, they encouraged me and said, go. And then well, within a year or two, it wasn't so much a tech beat. It was just writing about the intelligence community. So for young people who want to get into this 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 profession, I mean, what I always tell them is you don't have to major in journalism, major in, you know, study, you know, uh, get a liberal arts degree. The social sciences are great. I was a politics major, but read a lot and be curious and understand that journalism doesn't mean that you're becoming an expert in a subject. It means that you become an expert into knowing how to get answers to questions. Your job is to be an expert in finding the experts and in gathering the information and explaining it to people. In many ways, it's not all that different than being an intelligence officer. You have to go out, cultivate sources, get information from them, verify it, validate it, assess its credibility, and then make sense of it and then tell a story to someone about it. In the intelligence officer's case, it's a policymaker. In my case, as a journalist, it's, you know, it's a broader public, but they're all using those stories to try to make decisions and to try to understand the world. And if you can see your role as a journalist as being about asking lots of questions, being curious and trying to answer them, then you'll go far. That's basically the key thing that we do. And if you can do that and, and do it every day, you'll have a, a satisfying career. Ask good questions, listen, take good notes, and then write accurately. Yeah, that's it. Shane, this has been a fascinating uh, presentation. I really want to thank you and the Washington Post. And I'm sure that our broader audience will really enjoy it. Well, thanks, Jim. It's great to talk to you. And thanks for inviting me on. I appreciate it. 